ERCP can be, it's one of the best and most rewarding procedures. You know, I think every interventionalist loves ERCP, loves pus drainage. You know, we love the wires and all the <laughs> devices. Pus drainage. Everybody loves pus drainage. <laughs> um, it can also be, you know, very frustrating and humbling procedure. And I think, you know, what I love, love about it is uh, the challenge, you know, you, you never know what you're getting into. Uh, be a straightforward stone case and be a nightmare to cannulate or whatever. So it's it's always a challenge, and, and that's what I love about it. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Indocast. I'm your host, Leslie Bishop, and this is episode 21 with our physician guest, Dr. Jessica Widmer from the NYU Long Island School of Medicine. Indocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians, by clinicians, presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Dr. Widmer, welcome to Endocast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Thank you for uh, taking a little time out of your DDW crazy schedule we were just talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully, this will be a nice fun break from the all-day events you've been doing. Yeah, definitely. So tell me, I know we're going to be talking about ERCP, but I would love to hear a little bit, I'm sure the audience would love to know a little bit about you and maybe how did you get into GI? Why did you go into medicine? And maybe why even therapeutics? Okay, well, I guess that's a long story. Since I was a kid, I always wanted to do medicine. I thought, you know, I thought being a heart surgeon sounded really cool. But by the time I got there, that wasn't really my interest. And I kind of stumbled around to gastroenterology and I guess it's a, it's a funny story and maybe brings up women in medicine because when I started rotating in gastroenterology, there was one really great female physician who really took me in and tried to get me included, but she was in motility. And she would say, oh, I have the perfect patient for you in my clinic. And, you know, at the same time, my heart was sinking. And I'm thinking, oh, no. <laughs> you weren't interested in motility. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so it turned out that she took a job somewhere else because her husband was relocating. And, um, you know, one of my future mentors came who, uh, you know, thankfully guided me towards advanced endoscopy. And that's how I ended up here. Okay. I love that. It's interesting. We've had two doctors now who said they knew they wanted to be doctors when they were little. I think that's kind of amazing. I have no idea why no one in my family is in medicine. I thought it sounded good. And uh, I, I guess I. I I don't know. But uh, then my interest, you know, through high school and everything was science and biology. And, you know, my friends were in study hall and I was dissecting animals in a bio lab. Come on. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was your favorite dissection? Uh, I probably the most memorable was a cat because I just, no. yes. You dissected yeah. a cat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will not tell my cat buddy. <laughs> I don't think yeah. he would like to know that. Yeah. So that was just my interest and just worked out. Talk to me about your current clinical focus. I do all advanced endoscopy and um, I guess my focus is really pancreatic biliary work, GI malignancy, and my area of interest is therapeutic EUS. ERCP has obviously been around a long time, like Mm -hmm. 50 years. I'd love to hear your perspective on how that has changed. Well, I mean, I, I think it's obviously gone from more of a diagnostic to mainly therapeutic type procedure. But it's interesting, I think, in the past you know, 10 years or so, we're swinging back to look at diagnostics and how we can use that, how we can grow and expand that area as well. So I think that's kind of another area of expansion in ERCP right now. Right. So a challenge, obviously, in ERCP is gaining and maintaining access. Yeah. 
So I would love, I'm sure the doctors listening would love whatever clinical pearls you have on those two things. Gaining access, I guess, you know, starts with a good examination of the ampulla. I always try to get my fellows to pause. They're so excited to get started. I'm like, just stop and look at the ampulla. Try to figure out where your biliary orifice is. But, you know, I think some of it has to do with patient positioning. I do my the majority of my procedures in the supine position, so that can be a little tougher, especially for a trainee. But it's appropriate positioning of the patient based upon whatever the clinical scenario is, a uh, good examination of the papilla, you know your devices and you know what you think might get it, you know, get you in if it's a routine stone case versus a difficult malignancy or something like that. You know, I have a variety of different tools. Okay, and then what about maintaining access? Maintaining access, I, I guess, depends on both you and your assistant. Keeping your eye on fluoroscopy, keeping your eye on your wire endoscopically. You have to be careful using your accessories and going in and out. But if you've gotten your access and you have fluoroscopic images with a cholangiogram, you know, usually even if you lose access, hopefully you can get back in. What is your approach for multiple stones in a duct? depends on the size of the stones. Um, if they're small, you know, you can do your standard biliary sphincterotomy and I just, you know, may opt to use either an extraction balloon or basket depending on how it looks. Sometimes I use a basket actually in that situation. Um, I start uh, pretty distally. I don't want to go up, up too high and try to take out too many at one time. So I start with just, you know, one or two. There's a distal aspect of the duct. If you have large stones, I do routinely do a sphincteroplasty. I think that gives you better results. And when are you deciding on the basket? I feel like when I was in the field, doctors were always more afraid to use the basket. Yeah, I know. I guess it has to do maybe with how you train. <laughs> I don't know. But a lot of times, you know, even with a really, you know, with a complete biliary sphincterotomy, when you're yanking stones out with a basket, you'll get a tear of the apex of the of the sphincterotomy and, you know, may have some bleeding or maybe you have some separation, you know, of the mucosa from the duodenal wall. So I don't see that as much with a basket. So I, I, do, I do opt for that sometimes. What about SPY? and EHL or laser are using that technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes when you have large stones, uh, you've got to go in and fragment it. I do sometimes use mechanical lithotripsy too, you know, tends to be, you know, late on a Friday night where there's only one nurse who knows how to do it with us. But, uh, you know, I'll opt for that sometimes. A lot of times we go directly to SPY. And I think it depends on what's available at your institution. What's readily available in my room is EHL, so I usually start with that first. But sometimes these, you know, these stones are big, hard marbles, and we'll do better with a laser. That's the determination if you pull the laser? Yeah. Okay. What about managing strictures? What's your algorithm for that? Well, I think strictures, you know, first is the diagnosis, which can be a bit challenging. Um, and, you know, when I said earlier that I think the diagnostics of ERCP are evolving again, it's mainly with stricture diagnosis. Uh, you know, so we use cholangioscopy uh, to characterize it and try to figure out, you know, what, what is the endoscopist impression of what's going on? Because I think that holds a lot of weight, especially for someone who's experiencing cholangioscopy. You generally have a sense of what, what's malignant. And even if your tissue acquisition position is not consistent with that impression, at least it can help drive you for you know, continuing to try to get more tissue or it may 
know, help the patient get to a surgical resection sooner or at least surveillance imaging. So I think the impression of what you're seeing on cholangioscopy is very important. Certainly having consensus, you know, on, on what we're seeing, you know, there's a lot of different criteria that are going on, uh, going around right now. So uh, trying to streamline that. But, you know, it depends exactly what's the scenario. I usually start out with an EUS in these patients because if there's any way that I can try to get tissue EUS, that's probably the most reliable if there's, you know, a regional lymph node or something that I could access or a mass that will not be an issue in terms of, you know, surgery down the line or anything like that. I usually try to get the majority of my tissue that way. Sometimes that's just not an option or it's not safe or it's just bile duct wall thickening. So we really have to rely upon um, ERCP to get tissue. So, you know, of course, doing cholangioscopy, taking directed biopsies, you know, I think that's usually sufficient. Uh, sometimes in patients who, I, you know, clinically, it really is an indeterminate stricture, in my opinion, and I'm not sure uh, exactly how it's going to go. I'll take additional tissue, you know, brushings for cytology or fish or or something like that, uh, less commonly. Okay, on the directed biopsies, how many, do you have a specific number you like to go for? You know, <laughs> I, I take two bites. <laughs> you know, I um, I maybe, I always kind of laugh and say I'm lazy, I like a lazy, I just want to take two and we'll see what we get. But I, I find with the newer spy bite, we're really able to do that consistently. So I take two bites at once and depends on how the tissue looks. You know, I always ask the, the um, nurse or the tech in the room how my tissue looks, but at least six to eight pieces. A good number of passes. Yeah. And um, biliary RFA is obviously an emerging technology, so I'm curious how you've integrated Habib into your practice. You know, I do it for patients. Someone who comes to mind right now is I have a woman in her 60s who has a gallbladder cancer with biliary obstruction, and um, we ended up doing stent revisions and got her metal stents, and we did ablation, and just, you know, she has a good life expectancy. She's doing well on chemotherapy, and, you know, I want her to go as long as she can without having to come back. So, you know, it's kind of the patient population that we target. Uh, I think in terms of therapy for bile duct strictures, RFA can really be implemented for a variety of different cancer types, you know, so we have more of an option there as compared to others like PDT. I think if we can implement that into practice for the patient, it's good. What's your treatment algorithm for Habib? Depends on the location. I usually try to... Usually in my practice, I've already stented that patient and I'm bringing them back. So most of the time I start with a plastic stent, so I'm taking them out and access. And then I start at the proximal aspect of the uh, structure and then, you know, we'll do sequentially down the duct as I see appropriate based upon the length of the structure. Of course, we usually do balloon sweeps in between to get rid of some of the necrotic tissue and then re-stent. And then when you're stenting a patient, how do you determine what stent, whether you're using plastic or metal or covered, all those different things? Uh, that's a loaded question, <laughs> and <laughs> I think there are many long papers written on all of those subjects. There but are. I think uh, you know, starting out with benign indications first, you know, uh, really depends, I think, on, on what's going on. You know, it's stone disease and someone with a very large duct, you know, I'll opt to usually put double pigtail stents in. If it's somebody who be just a benign Maritzi syndrome or something that's very temporary, you know, place a straight plastic stent. Uh, more complex scenarios, uh, benign 
refractory structures, you know, I'll, I'll opt for metal stents. Uh, sometimes I do that right away up front. Uh, post-surgical uh, patients who have strictures, you know, a lot of times I'll go right to metal stenting in them. They've developed an anastomotic stricture. In terms of malignancy, that can be a little more complicated, I think, depending on if the patient's a surgical candidate and depending on your institution surgeons and what they're comfortable with. I mean, ours are very comfortable with metal stenting. So, you know, if it's if it's my impression that, you know, I've diagnosed the malignancy and I'm clear on what's going on, I go right for a metal stent. Rarely do, do I use plastic in those scenarios if it's a distal or mid-stricture. If it's a hyalur stricture and complex, it depends on... I think the the size of the duct and degree of dilation, but I would say typically I usually start with plastic because in those patients it may be a little less clear exactly what their treatment plan is going to be, mm-hmm. and so I think it's better. You know, I usually have a multidisciplinary discussion between hepatobiliary surgeons and oncologists. I establish their treatment plan, and then I usually will go back in for a revision to uh, give more definitive drainage and talk about treatment options. I know a huge topic is how to prevent complications. So I'd love to hear what your algorithm is for that. What are you doing to prevent like pancreatitis, for example? So posterior CP pancreatitis, uh, you know, I think there are a few things to talk about. Uh, procedural, you know, we give endomethacin. And and generally, I think the ASG recommendations are to give it to everyone. And that do with the patient's first year CP, patients who are higher risk, I'm always administering it. I think in some institutions, you know, having a lot of issues now with the cost of the medication. And, uh, you know, if you're in a large hospital system, they may be making suggestions about really trying to select the patient population who should be getting this medication. So do routinely give endomethacin before the first ERCP or in higher risk patients. There are algorithms out there for aggressive IV fluid hydration, which is probably a little easier to apply to inpatients uh, pre-procedurally and up to eight hours afterwards, but maybe not as feasible with outpatients. I do give them a good amount of fluid in the, in the PACU. And, you know, I think wire-guided cannulation over uh, contrast injection uh, alone reduces the risk of posterior CP pancreatitis. And, of course, you know, the final thing is if you're accessing the pancreatic duct with a guide wire, if you're there a couple times, just go ahead and place a PD stent. I wanted to shift gears. I wanted to ask you a couple questions about being a woman in therapeutic endoscopy. But before I do that, I just wanted to see if you had any closing thoughts you wanted to add about ERCP. ERCP can be, it's one of the best and most rewarding procedures. You know, I think every interventionalist loves ERCP, loves pus drainage. You know, we love the wires and all the <laughs> devices. Pus drainage. Everybody loves <laughs> pus drainage. Um, it can also be, you know, very frustrating and humbling procedure. And I think, you know, what I love, love about it is uh, the challenge, you know, you, you never know what you're getting into. Uh, be a straightforward stone case and be a nightmare to cannulate or whatever. So it's it's always a challenge, and, and that's what I love about it. Okay, I love that. There aren't that many women, especially in advanced endoscopy, therapeutics. And you have successfully built your career and built a family. And so I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because if there's a woman who's looking at endoscopy or maybe advanced therapeutics, but thinks there's just not a way to balance all this, I, I figured you might be able to give some advice to them maybe. It's a challenge. Uh, <laughs> I want to say I'm doing it successfully. I, I hope. Um, it's hard to have, have it all. Um, that's it's very difficult, and you sacrifice things along the way. Sometimes, sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's work. You have to kind of pick your priorities every day. I think the main thing is to say it takes a village is an understatement. I have a village at home, and I have a village at work. 
at work, I have the luxury of having a lot of support in terms of PA support, fellow support, researchers, unicretaries and administrative staff. So that allows me to focus not only on my clinical practice, but also as I take on administrative roles. I've learned more and more that if one of them isn't there, I can't function without them. It's become really reliant upon your staff. It's not me, it's an entire team. I think that's very important to acknowledge. I can't do it without all of them. Yeah. It's the same thing at home. My husband is, is a special guy for putting up with me, certainly. <laughs> um, how we, you know, it works. He's also a physician, so I think he understands dedication. And I don't even know what is the word. Uh, just the responsibility that we have for our patients. I think he sees that in me and understands it. So it's something I don't have to explain. But he, he has, um, you know, really great hours as compared to me. So, you know, he's home and during the week. He takes the responsibility of kids, you know, homework and all of those things that I just kind of can't do. I have a, a full-time nanny who's with me, you know, seven to whenever we need her. Uh, she's been with me you know, eight, nine years at this point, so she's really family. My in-laws are like second tier, you know, in case my nanny's not there, I have my in-laws. And then, you know, as your kids start getting older, and mine are almost 12 and 9, things start shifting a little bit. They want to be with their friends more, and, and perhaps that makes it a touch easier for me. But I think all of the mothers in my community, working mothers, non-working mothers, every mother's working, for the record. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's it's a really warm community. We have uh, you know have so many carpools. I am the carpool queen, and those moms uh, pick up the slack. We do it for each other. You know, um, I have one day my my admin day. I try to get out at a reasonable time, and I'm the carpool person that day. I may pick up my work afterwards, late in the evening, trying to catch up because I left a little earlier. But I show up. Uh, I make sure I show up at the most important things. And on the weekend, I'm 150% mom when I'm not on call you know um, and I think it gets easier as, as your children get older and they accept what you're doing and try to teach my kids especially now that they're getting a little bit older they need to focus on other people and what's going on and a little bit less on themselves and I share with them sometimes what I'm doing at work you know They'll call me all the time sometimes in the middle of a procedure and I explain to them well I have the sick patient on the table you know with a cancer I want you to be respectful of what I'm doing right now and and that I have to take care of that patient and I think it teaches them a little bit of something you know? it sounds like if I just summarize what you just said it's like you have to have be not afraid to ask for help. Yes. And really enlist a lot of different people. I had a nanny for seven years and we called her our nanny elf. Because <laughs> <laughs> she really was our lifeline. And then marrying the right person because I think that having that help at home is so is so critical. You had some mentors over the years that have helped you with all of this, especially since you're more on like the groundbreaking end of this. I would say I had two main mentors uh, in my career, uh, one of whom, you know, although was a therapeutic endoscopist and the one who rescued me from motility, <laughs> you know, he taught me how to be a good doctor. And I spent a lot of time following him around, you know, I was enamored with everything he was doing endoscopically. And being, you know, part of his team, I would say, I inserted myself as part of his team, he held me to a higher standard in terms of caring for patients and the expectation and what he wanted to know about the patient. So many times I was sent back to get more information or whatnot, but I, I think he really taught me how to be a good doctor. It's interesting, you know, when I came back from my training and I was in practice for a few years and, and I joined back at the same hospital, we have daughters the same age. And so 
Uh, I remember telling him I was pregnant. I was nervous to tell him I had just gotten my Vance Endoscopy Fellowship, you know, and I was not sure how that was going to go across. And he was so completely supportive. And then interestingly, like a month or two down the line, he announced that his wife was having a daughter. And so it's been interesting seeing our kids who, who you know, grew up, especially early on as, as friends and seeing him as a father, uh, despite traveling so much, despite working very long hours, you know, his daughter was certainly you know, the apple of his eye. And to see him starting to set some boundaries in terms of need to leave today and show up at her concert or whatever, being a man do that, felt like I had permission to do the same thing. Because I think sometimes as a woman, you feel that you can't show that side of yourself. And so he, you know, for me, that was a little bit liberating to see him doing it. Yeah, I love that. Well, this has been awesome, and I really thank you for coming and uh, joining me today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Indocast. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit our virtual education platform, Educare. That's E-D-U-C-A-R-E dot bostonscientific.com and choose gastroenterology. The site features over 180 resources, including physician-led educational videos, lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every case or patient. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote or encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases as individual results may vary. Thank you.